1: My guest this week was a small-town boy with big city dreams, whose staggering success as an investor and whose extraordinary account of his journey around the world on a motorbike thrilled and inspired a whole new generation of finance professionals, none more so than me. When I first discovered that journey, I was captivated, not only by many of the places he visited, but also by the incredible thought process he chronicled, a thought process which demonstrated brilliantly how he identified original trade ideas and which inspired me to try and think about investing in a completely different way. Today, almost a quarter of a century after I first read about his exploits, I'm joined by a man who remains as original a thinker as you'll find anywhere in the investment world, and who has, over the course of his travels, accumulated wisdom and experience upon which it's impossible to put a price. This week, on Adventures in Finance, Jim Rogers. Today is September 21st, 2017, and welcome to episode 34 of Adventures in Finance. To my right, as always, is producer James. Uh, how's that Twitter feed going, mate?
2: It's going all right. I'm, I'm tempted about uh, tweeting about some sharks. Why? Well, because my buddy jumped in the water with five tiger sharks the other day.
1: Why would you do that? Was, it, was the alternative having a conversation with you?
2: Well, you suddenly realised that he, he looked and smelled like food, so he jumped out. Very, very quickly thereafter.
1: <laughs> I'm not quite sure what to do with that information, thank you. Well, how,
2: I'm going to tweet about it, that's what I'm going to do about how it. Many,
1: uh, how many followers do you have?
2: I, I have 36 followers now, Grant.
1: 36? Yeah. That's, what, an increase of 11 from last week? Something like that, but hey, it's, it's in the right direction. This is a step in the right direction. All right, well, anybody out there that would uh, like to follow James, that's AIF James. There is an alternative, as we've already discovered, which is jumping into a... See you filled with tiger sharks, but if you don't really want to do that, then I suggest you follow James. Now, this week, uh, after the fantastic conversation we had with Hugh Hendry last week, and I have to say, um, on a personal note, you know, the news broke the day after we we recorded that conversation that Hugh was shutting down the Eclectica Fund after 15 years. um, I I have to say thank you to Hugh uh, for being just a fantastic guest for not cancelling the interview on what must have been a horrendous day for him. Um, and, uh, you know, I wish him all the best. He's a, he's a tremendous mind, and uh, I look forward to him being back in the investment game sooner rather than later. This week, moving on, uh, we have another incredible guest joining us. Um, this guy is a hero of mine. I first read his book, Investment Biker, oh, too many years ago to remember, uh, and I've read it once or at least twi- twice since then. Uh, he wrote A Venture Capitalist about a decade after that, which I devoured, um, And recently wrote another book called Street Smarts, uh, which are just fantastic accounts of his trip around the world and the various uh, people and situations he's encountered along the way. And hopefully we're going to talk to him about a few of those today. Uh, I'd like to welcome to the show, Jim Rogers. All right, Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's always a pleasure. This is the third time you and I have had a chance to chat properly and uh, the other two have just been so much fun and, and I'm looking forward to today. So thanks for joining us.
0: Well, I'm delighted to be here, Grant, so let's do it.
1: Let's do it indeed. So um, the, the, the format of this uh, of this podcast is uh, to try and get a sense of the people behind the sort of public face uh, of, of some high profile investors and, and there aren't many higher profile than you. And what I wanted to do was talk through, if I can, uh, a couple of defining moments in your life because um, what we found as we've, as we've done this Real Vision podcast, um, project is that whenever we speak to people about experiences they've had and lessons they've learned they really resonate with the audience and it's a great way for people to learn from great investors um, you know here's a problem I faced here's how I dealt with it here's how I, I changed the way I look at things so uh, I, that's what I've really enjoyed getting into so if I can um, if I can ask you to, to pick your first defining moment from your life at any point and and we could perhaps talk through it
0: well, I, I, looking back on it, uh, thinking, of the, as you put it, um, I guess the defining, when I was a senior at university, I was gonna to go to law school and business school and medical school. You know, I was a confused young man. One day I went down to the, uh, the, the companies would come to the university to interview students. So I went down to have interviews, to have that experience. Uh, one of the guys, uh, I liked a great deal. He worked on Wall Street. I knew nothing about Wall Street. Except that something bad happened in 1929. I knew it was in New York, but nothing else. I didn't know there was a difference in stocks and bonds in those days. But I liked the guy, and uh, he offered me a summer job. So I went to take the summer job. I needed a summer job. I was going off to graduate school. I took the the job, and I fell in love. I didn't go to law school or business school or medical school. As soon as I could, I went to Wall Street. I couldn't believe that they would pay me to do what I loved. What I loved at that time as a you know young 21-year-old was, uh, I loved the world and what was happening in the world. And here was a place that would pay me, and pay me a lot if I did it well, to know about the world. I couldn't believe it. So I I went straight to Wall Street as soon as I could.
1: And what, how, how did that go down with your parents? Were, were they excited for you to go to become a lawyer or a doctor? Because that's, that's every parent's dream, I guess.
0: Well, my mother was uh, quite uh, determined that I would be a doctor. Uh, her father had been a, a lawyer. Uh, it was everybody's plan at that university in those days to, to go to law school. Uh, my parents for as far as they were concerned, they really didn't have much clue about Wall Street. You have to remember, I was from the backwoods of Alabama, and Wall Street was a faraway place where nobody knew anything at all except 1929.
1: Yeah. But, but, but that desire to see the world, you know, back then, obviously there was so much less in, in the way of media. There was, people had so much less exposure to the world. I guess, I guess in those days you really got your exposure to the outside world just from reading, from reading books novels, um, uh, memoirs, that kind of thing. What, what was it that gave you that, that wanderlust, that desire to, to see the world?
0: Well, that's a wonderful question. There I was. My, I was in this little backwood village. Uh, my, my telephone number was five in the town <laughs> where I grew up. Uh, so it was, you can see, it was really, it was really not the mainstream. Uh, I'm not sure. I do remember uh, when I was 16 saying to my girlfriend, gosh, I'm 16. I've never seen anything. I don't know where that um, that came from. My girlfriend, of course, said, oh, I've seen everything. I've been to Birmingham. I've been to Mobile. I've been to Montgomery. <laughs> These are cities in, in, in yes. Alabama. Uh, and I, said, I realized that well, she and I had different views and different visions of the world. So somehow or another, I had it from young age. And uh, I guess I should. I've learned now that I should listen to myself when I have some crazy vision. I should follow up on it.
1: This yeah, you know, this um we're coming up on the thirtieth anniversary of, of nineteen eighty seven, uh the crash of nineteen eighty-seven, and you would have been doing this around the same sort of distance from that nineteen twenty-nine um experience in the US. when you look back on it now, did you did you see the the, the, the trauma still or had it dissipated? Because of it? they didn't have the kind of recovery, they'd had a war in between. Was that memory of the nineteen twenty-nine crash Had that been kind of lost or or, or diffused by the fact that the war had happened in between?
0: Well, not with older people. uh, Many of them remembered it. My parents certainly remembered uh, the 30s. Uh, Older people certainly did remember I mean, me, I was born in 1942. So, no, I didn't remember any of it. I just heard old people talk about it. I certainly read about it in history books, especially when I got to uh, to Wall Street. But, no, that was not a, a hard memory for me and people of my generation by the way the uh, the the collapse in in 1987 happened on my birthday and i was short <laughs> the market so it happened to be one probably the best birthday party i ever had
1: <laughs> well I'll, I'll wish you an early happy birthday then for for a month's time but but when you when you actually got to wall street did you find that there because um, when, when i talk to people now there's a lot of people still scarred by 08 for example um, the older guys they they kind of remember eighty seven as a bad day uh, and two thousand um, was kind of localized in terms of it being mostly technology stocks that that really got crushed. Um, did you find that that Wall Street was still traumatized by by uh, by the, the the great Depression?
0: Well I would say yeah the, the older guys, yes, 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 they certainly remember uh, and most Wall Street firms did not have, much debt in those days. In fact they, they didn't have debt. They were partnerships uh, still in those days. And so no, no, no. They remembered, you know, they remember all their friends going out of business, etc. So and and you will find, I cannot think that there was a single partnership in those days which had which had debt.
1: Yeah, no, I know debt was a, a four-letter word back then. So so you know from the backwoods of Demopolis, Alabama, you, you find yourself on Wall Street. Uh I mean, even with your your kind of wanderlust and this desire to go out and see the world, when you find yourself in the middle of New York City, how does that affect a, a country boy from Demopolis, Alabama?
0: Well, it was very exciting. New York in those days it was certainly the most, probably the most, or one of the most exciting cities in the world. I hadn't been to many, so I, I couldn't really judge that. But for me, it was very, very exciting. I loved, loved, loved what I was doing, I, I would have done it. I did do it seven days a week. You know, I used to wish that the market were open seven days a week. Yeah. It was so much fun for me. I, I couldn't get enough of it. I didn't consider it work, I was just having fun. That's all I wanted to do.
1: Yeah, that, do you know that's so funny. I remember that from when I, when I started work back in, in the uh, early 80s, exactly the same feeling. I, I, my alarm would go off at, at 5 o'clock, where well, I'd been up for half an hour already, just couldn't wait to get to work and couldn't wait to kind of get involved in the markets and see what was going on. It was a, it was a curious curious thing to do. I've never done it since. Nowadays, my alarm goes off and I just hit the snooze button.
0: Well, I, I try to tell – I speak at universities a lot and to young people. I tell them well, all they need to do is to figure out what they love the most and that's what they should do. Because then they'll never go to work. They'll just wake up and have fun every day.
1: Yeah, that's so uh, true.
0: And don't listen to your parents or your teachers or your friends. Just figure out what you love and go do it. And that's those people are usually the ones that are most successful, as you know, because they're having so much fun.
1: Yeah, it's, and, it's, it's and if true. They're not
0: success, if they're not successful, they don't care. They're happy. Yeah,
1: yeah. The, the trick is, I guess, once you've found what you want to do, is figuring out or well, finding someone who will pay you for doing it. That's always the tricky. That's the trickiest step in this little process, I think. So, Jim, um, if I can, I'd, I'd love to uh, perhaps talk now about um, another crossroad you came to along that, perhaps that journey of yours around the world in your motorbike because uh, I read Investment Biker a number of years ago and it, it, well, I've read it I think, I think three times uh, in all. It's just such a wonderful, wonderful account of, of an incredible journey. That How did you get to the point where you decided to take That journey because a lot of people say you know one of these days I'm gonna go around the world on a motorbike but no one actually does it
0: I know you know there was a survey done not long ago that showed that the number one dream which people have in the world is to chuck it all get in the car or the motorcycle and (laughs) head off around the world it's the number one it's not everybody's number one dream obviously but it's the one that comes out on top and it is astonishing how few people even try it and some do try it and don't make it obviously uh, but it has been a long time. I can remember thinking in the, when I was at the university, if I ever got 10,000 US dollars, I would have an income <laughs> of $50 a month and I could go around the world. That, the things were a lot cheaper then. Yeah. So I had this this vision, this, this wanderlust, this idiocy. From a, for a long, long, long time, and it was one of the things that I very, very much wanted to do as long as I can remember. I, I had my first motor scooter when I was 14. I had a motorcycle uh, pretty pretty early, and that's what I wanted to do. I, I knew that motorcycles are fun, and I knew that the best way to see things is by a motorcycle, and I wanted to see the world. I'd grown up in a place where my phone number was five. I, needed to, I knew there had to be more for me to go and see.
1: But but there's still there's there's that there's that moment where you, you decide to make that dream a reality and you and you say, Okay, I am actually going to do this. Um, how do you how do you cross that, that chasm from this would be such a great idea to actually buying provisions and planning and finding visas and, and tickets and all that stuff?
0: Well, in those days, you have to remember, I retired in 1980, and there was the Cold War, there was Red China,
1: yeah.
0: you know, there was the Soviet Union, uh, all of the, the uh, Iron Curtain, all of those things. So it wasn't so easy. Now, I, I was determined that if I were going to do it, I was going to do it right. I wasn't just going to you know, go down through Europe to Australia and then up to South. Because I I, people would always say, or at least I would have always said, you didn't really go around the world, you did the easy way. So I was determined that I had to go across China and I had to go across the Soviet Union. Now, think back, if you can, to those days. That was absurd and impossible. Uh, I went to China in 1984, terrified because I'd been reading how dangerous and vicious and cruel the Chinese were, but got there and they weren't vicious and cruel and, and dangerous. I've been reading American propaganda all my life, <clears throat> and I, I said, I want to ride across China on a motorcycle. You look back on that; that's insane. Yeah. Capitalist American, 1984. You know, Mousie Tongue had only been dead eight years. Uh, I, if I was smart, I would have realized that it was opening up. I would have realized what Deng Xiaoping was doing better. But I, the, the the Soviets, the same thing. He was an American capitalist, Wall Street, who wanted to ride a motorcycle across the Soviet Union. I remember. Finally, when somebody would listen to it, and I knocked on a lot of doors, finally, when a guy listened, I went to Moscow. He wrote me and said, yeah, come, you, will, you can do this, which shocked me because I've been trying for nine yeah. years. Uh, and, and he said, why would you want to do this? There's nothing out there. There's no roads. There's nothing out there. Uh, and I said, well, I just, you know, I've got this crazy vision that that's what I want to do. Uh, and so they said yes to my shock. But finally, I got permission from the Chinese, I got permission from the Russians, but this took a long time. It wasn't so easy in those days. And I will tell you just an aside, Uh, 10 years later, in 1998, I contacted that Russian again and said, I want to do it again, on this time I'm going to do it in the car. He said, I knew you were crazy, you know. <laughs> anybody who would do it once has to be crazy, but anybody who wants to drive across our or twice has to be certifiable. Well, we know you're not a spy, so I said, we're going to let you do it.
1: Well, plus he, he knows that you were slightly less crazy because at least you wanted a roof over your head this time. I guess that's... Uh... Well, yeah,
0: that's, that's
1: <laughs> for sure. So, but but, but that, that moment when you when you cross into, um, to your point, what, what at that time was... Uh, communist east germany you, you, you're leaving the confines of the west and by that time you were you developed a familiarity with european markets and and you know, you traveled through austria and there's some, there's some great stories which you and i actually spoke about in in, in the first time we sat down for real vision um, but but that 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 moment where you leave behind essentially everything you know the entire way of life that you know and you and you venture into something completely unknown how did that affect you? How did that strike you?
0: I, I know, I, I'm sure I am nuts, but uh, I would think about this. So people would say, you're going to get killed. And I would say, well, at least if I get killed, I'm going to die happy. I'd rather get killed riding my motorcycle around the world than getting hit by a bus on Fifth Avenue in New York. <laughs> you know, when I'm 60 years old or something. Uh, at least I'm going to die happy. I'm going to die doing what I want to do. And I used to tell myself that all the time. Who knew? Who knew that I was going to make it a lot? But, but I did. And every time there was a new border or a new anything, I mean, every, when you're going around the world every day, every five minutes is something new. No matter where you are, it's, it's all brand new. And I used to say, well, at least I get, if I get killed. But it was so exciting and so much fun and so challenging. There was always a challenge. I'll, you know, even when things went wrong there was, you learned something. So it was, I don't know, I guess I am not, as I hear myself speak. (laughs)
1: Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's precisely, that's precisely why I wanted to talk to you about this stuff. That, that sense that everything, that there's always a challenge, something always goes wrong, but you, you figure it out. I mean, what, what was the first moment once, once you left um, the confines of America and you got to Europe, you were driving through, what was the first time you, you found yourself faced with what I'm sure at the time felt like an insurmountable problem that you had to overcome, whether it was a, a visa, a border, a broken air motorbike in the middle of nowhere. What was that first moment where you, where you really thought, oh my God, I'm doing this and I'm out here on my own and I need to figure this out?
0: The very first day we started <laughs> we went to the west coast of Ireland because I wanted to go from the Atlantic to the Pacific. The very first day, some drunk Irish driver almost ran us down <laughs> because he was drunk and he was crazy. Uh, and the police came along too because they could see something was wrong. But I figured, well, you know, I could get killed doing this. Um, when I went around the world in the car, uh, we started in Iceland for a variety of reasons. And, you know, the third day out, we got, we got trapped in a blizzard. My, my, she was my fiance at the time, my wife said, what am I doing with you? What are you talking about? This is fun. This is insane. I said, "No, this is it. This is why we do it." She didn't see it quite that way when we were trapped in a blizzard and had to be towed out of a out of a snowbank.
1: Well, yeah, I can imagine that uh, that uh, spending that time with your with your fiance in a car in a blizzard that that's that that sounds like a big challenge to me. I can imagine any two people in that sort of space.
0: Well, I will tell you that. Uh, as you know, or most people know, that if you drive anywhere with somebody, it's a very, very serious test of a relationship. I mean, I know people who couldn't drive from, from Singapore to Malaysia without getting <laughs> a fight with, with somebody. It is a great, great test of any relationship. Uh, we were at the last stages of our trip, Paige and I. We were in Palo Alto, actually. And a, and a woman came over to us and said, oh, my this is my dream. I always want to do what you're doing. I cannot believe that. And then she looked at the car and she said, well, wait a minute, that's a two-seater, isn't it? I said, "Yes, yeah, two-seater. She said, you had a two-seater side by side every day for three years, 240,000 kilometers? That's what it was? And I said, yeah. And she said, oh, my God, my fiancé and I set out to drive from the East Coast of America to the West Coast. And we hate each other. You know, <laughs> halfway through, he got out. And I didn't even slow down. I was so happy to get a son of a bitch. So, so it's true. It is true. I don't think we didn't have plenty of uh, challenges and fights along the way. Uh, one of the great things about a motorcycle is, if you have a fight with somebody, you get on your motorcycle and you go, uh, and the fight, you know, is gone by the time you get to the next place. But in a car, the fight yeah. stays there. The car, the fight doesn't go away. It's yeah. riding along with you.
1: Well, that, that, I mean that that um, to to have done this twice, once on your own and once. Um, with a a partner along the way how did the two compare because I mean obviously pros and cons for both because I think if when you're on your motorbike and you and you want to move on you just get up and you move on and you just you just I'm going to go to the next place and I'm going to go here and I'll take a I'll take a different route or I'll do something different and I and you can just do that did 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 Paige just kind of come along ride shotgun and just enjoy the ride or or did you find that you had to kind of plan this whole thing together the same time around
0: uh, in the beginning, Paige was a nightmare of a travel companion. Uh, even, even Germany scared her. You know, she, she thought, oh my gosh, here I am in Germany. What are we going to do? So you can imagine when we got to Turkey and, and Central Asia and places like that. But by the end, I mean, she was a fabulous uh, international traveler. She could cross borders with the best of them. You know, she could spit in their eyes just like anybody else. But boy, for the first several thousand kilometers she was a mess. I didn't know which, which was tougher, the trip or or dealing with her. But by the end, she was, you know, she could do
1: it. And, and when you, you know, when you, when you finish this that, that trip, um, you know, your, your investment style is, is to my mind, an example to everybody because you, you do incredible research, you find your ideas and then you stick with them. And now a part of that is the latitude of, of, investing your own money so you have the time you can do that you can invest for generations if you choose to um but when you when you when you finish those journeys had your investing style changed because i i i always get the sense that you've always been um i I use the word contrarian um just because i can't think of a better one at the time being I, i don't mean one a contrarian for contrarian's sake but but had your the experience of being on wall street where you're just immersed in the u.s markets U.S. stocks, the, the Wall Street Journal, and really not much else outside. Had experiencing all these things, did it change your investment style in any way?
0: Well, no, I had always uh, invested all around the world, uh, long and short, and all, you know, stocks, commodities, bonds, currencies, everything. Since my very first days on Wall Street, uh, I had, because I had this madness about the world, uh, I had always done that. I, I even, if you can imagine the 60s, telling people that I'm investing in the Danish Krona. I mean, they walk out of the room. I mean, we don't waste our time on whoever this kid is. Uh, no, so I had always done that. And, and so that part didn't change. Of course, I found new markets and, and new things, but I was eager. I was very eager to find uh, new things and new markets.
1: And when you when you got back to the U.S., what was the place that you found yourself talking about to everybody? What was the place And you know what, I... This country was just such a complete revelation to me, and the people, the, the, the markets, whatever it may have been.
0: Well, the place that I talked most about, but I had started before, was was China. Uh, and if you can remember the 90s, everybody was worried about the Japanese threat and Japan yeah. taking over the world. And I would say, I'd be on television, so I'd say, forget Japan, what are you talking about? you got to worry, if you're going to worry got to worry about China. And they're not a worry. You don't have to worry. You just better get get up to date on what's happening in China, because China is going to be the most important country in the 21st century. And that, of course, caused great guffaws and, and ridicule and everything else. Now, now, it doesn't cause guffaws and ridicule, but it certainly did then.
1: But, but when you when you talk about China now um obviously there are, there are two very distinct camps in China there are the China's a disaster waiting to happen and um there's going to be a, a credit crisis there's going to be a crash over there and there are the other long-term investors like yourself that that believe that uh yeah there will be bumps along the way but but China is going to be just fine when you hear the guys, uh, and, and very high-profile, very smart guys, we had um, we had Kyle Bass on here a couple of weeks ago, and Kyle makes a very eloquent case for why he thinks um, there's an enormous credit bust on its way to China. When you hear these guys talk, uh, what goes through your mind? Do you just do you look through that and think through that, um, and and it's not such a concern to you because you're a long-term uh, outlook?
0: Well, if we were sitting here in 1917. Somebody could have said, you know, that's going to be a huge credit bust in the United States in the next decade or two, uh, and you might have stayed away from the United States investing. And there was a gigantic credit bust in 1929 yeah. in the U.S. in the 30s. But America became the most successful country in the 21st century, In the 20th century, America had many credit. In, in the in the 19th century, America had 15 depressions with a D. I mean, only a nut would invest in the U.S. For the most part, in the 19th century, and many Europeans just could not fathom investing in the U.S. Well, okay, China's going to have plenty of problems. I assure you, there's going to be there's going to be bankruptcies. Beijing has said they're going to let people go bankrupt. I hope they do. You know, it'll be good for China. It'll be good for the world if China does let people go bankrupt. But that's part of it. I mean, you know, capitalism without bankrupts is like Christianity without sin, or something. I mean, you've got to have problems and delays along the way, and China will, too. I just hope I'm smart enough to survive it. I hope I'm smart enough to be in the right places at the right time. And by the way, uh, Grant, uh, the Chinese have a wonderful word. It does not exist in in English, but the word is a wei ji, which means opportunity and catastrophe are the same thing. And we all know it's true. If you see... Houses burning down, it's a disaster, but there are also opportunities if you can figure them out. So I hope that when, when Wei Ji comes to China that I'm smart enough to, to do the right thing.
1: But you, you said to me in our first interview um, that you were the worst timer in the world. You're just, you're just not a trader. Uh, you're an investor. So, so, I mean, China is a long-term investment story that you've, you've been involved in for, for de- literally decades now. Um, so, do you do you worry about these things coming, or do you think to yourself, "Well, when these busts come, I'm not going to worry about the investments I have because these, you know, I've had a lot of these for for 10, 15 years. But I will; it'll be a great chance for me to invest more capital into this country when it, when things are on sale."
0: Well, that's my plan. But now I, I haven't sold any Chinese shares, and I have been investing there for decades. Uh, my plan is that my children someday are going to look down and say. He must have been a smart old guy. Look at all these Chinese shares we got. We're rich. Uh, that's my plan. But you know, if, if, if things develop in certain ways, I'll have to sell. Uh, I mean, if, if a bubble develops, you have to sell, for instance. Uh, so I may sell some of my Chinese shares between here and there. Uh, I would like to nuts. I'd like to sell. I'd like to hold my Chinese shares through the Great Depression if it comes uh, to China. I, I doubt if I will. But I then hope that I'm smart enough to buy more, to buy a lot more. I mean, the idea of wage is, is fabulous, and I hope I get it right.
1: So, so uh, something I'm fascinated by, and, and I, I like to talk to a lot of people about this, because I, I'm still trying to figure out what I think about this myself. But when you look at Bitcoin, for example, you know, this is something that um, has come out of the clear blue sky for, for a lot of people. When you talk about bubbles that when you have to sell, what do you think when you look at Bitcoin? Because obviously, in China now, it's it's incredibly popular, and it's it's uh, the bulk of the trading is done uh, in China. What do you make of it?
0: Every word you just said is true until uh, two days ago, three days ago. Right. Now the yes. Chinese outlawed, uh, totally outlawed, cyber currencies, uh, trading, offering them, offerings, etc. Well. Um, I don't own, I never have owned any cyber currencies, I I say with great embarrassment. Uh, I wish I had, obviously, (laughs) but now there are 2,000 of them, uh, up from nothing a few years ago. I mean, this is what bubbles feel like and look like and sound like, as as you well know, Grant. So is it a bubble? I don't know. Uh, It looks like it. It feels like it. The idea that 2,000 of these have appeared out of nowhere. And they go up, you look at the charts of Bitcoin and the others, I mean, they, they look like any other bubble, those kind yeah. of charts. Uh, they all look the same. All bubbles throughout history have looked and felt the same. I, I, I'm certainly not buying any now. Uh, without the Chinese and a few other people, uh, they're going to have to find some some markets pretty quickly if it's going to, to work. Now, I the idea of of money on the computer is, is certainly something that's going to, to happen uh, in our lifetimes and, and you know, the world has money problems and everything that we know is being changed by the computer and by the internet. My kids will never go to a bank when they're adults, they'll probably never go to a post, may never go to a doctor uh, when they're adults because everything is on the computer. Well, money going to be on the computer too that does not mean it's going to be bitcoin or some of these guys that are racing around you know if you have gone back 100 years ago there were hundreds of automobile companies only 25 or so survived you know you go back 50 years there were thousands of computer companies but we've all heard of IBM but IBM didn't invent the computer
1: you know we have you,
0: you've probably never heard of the people who invented the computer and nice. all of those companies that disappeared
1: well, that's uh, it's it's this whole Bitcoin phenomenon has just has just everybody seems to have an opinion on it, and, and I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, how strongly everybody has taken their sides with this. You know, everybody, if if you are pro Bitcoin and you own Bitcoin, um, you absolutely refuse to see it as a bubble, and and not only that, but people get really quite aggressive when you when you question that maybe this thing's a bubble. When you, when you look at what's happened with Bitcoin and you go back to the 1970s and you remember uh, the bull market in gold, which, again, to your point, had a very similar chart pattern when gold in the 1980s. Do you see any parallels there? Because the, the two do get um, compared frequently, gold and, and Bitcoin, as potential stores of value. But obviously there is that tangibility to gold that you just don't have with Bitcoin. Does this, does this look and feel familiar to you? Okay. I've
0: lived through a few bubbles. I've I've shorted a few bubbles. <laughs> I've read about many, many, many other bubbles. They're always the same. And when you say that, when people people always say that, they always ridicule you. They always make make fun of you when you say this is a bubble. Uh, I've seen, I've had it happen to me many, many, many times. So the more people who insist that you're nuts and that this is not a bubble, that it's different this time. The fact that you're hearing that kind of stuff probably confirms that we're if not in a bubble we're certainly forming a bubble
1: yeah well that's uh bitcoin is um i guess that the end of that story is still to be written but i am watching it with absolute fascination particularly in light of uh, what the Chinese have done this last week okay i'm well, um, going to move on to uh to uh, the mailbag jim i've got i've had a bunch of questions in for you um but the first one we're going to ask you. Our guest last week, Hugh Hendry, uh, and and Hugh, bless him, um, gave us this interview on the day he closed his hedge fund, and he was, uh, you know, remarkably um, upbeat about life and and everything, as as Hugh tends to be. He's, he's, he's one or the other, but it was a fa- it was a fascinating conversation, and he he told us a story um, when we said to him that you know Jim's coming on next week, and we'd love a question for him. He he told us a story. Uh, of a time you and he met uh, at a party in Moscow, which is a long, long time ago. And he told us uh, that uh, he was sitting talking to you and was just in, wrapped with, with what you were talking to him. He said, at one point, um, you you pulled out uh, a gold coin and you said, you know, Hugh, look, you, you, you've got to own gold. And he said, later on in that same, uh, in that same conversation, uh, you pulled out some sugar from somewhere and said, the other thing you have to own is sugar. And so... Based on that, here here is Hugh Hendry's question for you. Oh,
2: Jim. Um, I remember uh, meeting Jimmy, um, and I'd, I'd been invited to um, an after-conference party at a Russian oligarch's apartment overlooking Red Square, and at the room I had Jimmy Rogers, uh, Nasim Taleb, and, and a few others, and Nasim Taleb know yeah. uh, anyone who's met him I mean, he's great fun but he, he is stark raving bonkers <laughs> um and so he would come up to me and say ah and he puts on this french voice uh ah, ah. and then he say to me who are you again <laughs> like, <laughs> uh hugh hundred. and then i turn around and i'd be sitting with with jimmy and jimmy would you get into pocket you get into his trouser pocket and he'd bring out a gold coin and be like, oh gold feel the gold gold's going up you should just you should own gold i'm like yeah no i get that jimmy and then like five minutes later in another composition you go into his jacket pocket and you bring out i don't know a sachet of sugar it's like you should be buying sugar and it's like jimmy, what have you got in that suit <laughs> i mean that's my kind of one of my memories of jimmy the question would be, so what's in Jimmy's, what's in Jimmy's trouser pocket to do? <laughs> you, you can tag that on to the end.
0: <laughs> I certainly remember uh, all of that. And I hope you did buy. I hope you did make some money and uh, some of those things back in those days. Uh, at the moment, what's in my pocket now? I, I have some gold in my pocket, but I'm not buying gold. Uh, sugar would be a better buy. Than, than gold. Agriculture would be a better. Russia. Russia would be a better buy. When I was there in those days, I was very, very, very negative on Russia. I first went to Russia in 1966 as a student and came away saying, this will never work, and came away bearish for the next 48 years. But now I'm very, very bullish. I'm very bullish on Russia. Russia is certainly a hated market. There's no question. And whenever you find a hated market, if there's something there to, to this changing, and I find changes have taken place and are taking place in Russia, then I would suggest he put some Russian rubles, put some rubles in your pocket. I, you might try the Russian ETF, might be better than the rubles, uh, but I own both.
1: Okay, own both. I'll, I'll pass both on to Hugh uh, and see if he's got room in his pockets. So he could turf out some of the rubles and buy an ETF.
0: Better still would be Russian government bonds in rubles.
1: His pockets probably aren't big enough to, to house the number of rubles he'd need, but, uh, but we'll pass that on to him, Jim. Thanks very much. Now, from the audience, we've got a few questions here, uh, and the first one that struck me was this one. Um, in, your, in your recent Real Vision interview, you recommended people take a look at North Korea because no one was looking at it. Uh, what do you make of what's happening uh, on the Korean Peninsula right now? And that's from Simon Mason.
0: Well, it's a very, very good question. Uh, I, I obviously do not have investments in North Korea. Uh, I, I don't know what the kid is doing. Uh, the, the Chinese have told the kid that if he starts a war, they will not help him. They've also told the kid that if the Americans start a war, they will help him. So, And the South Koreans have said, we're not going to have a war. But the kid keeps doing all of this. Now, the, the risk, of course, is that Donald Trump does something. That he gets into a fit of emotion. And many wars do start with, with leaders getting into emotional fits. Uh, I certainly do not have investments in North Korea. I am not investing in North Korea. I do have some in South Korea. I'm looking for ways to uh, invest in the eventual unification. One of two things is going to happen, Grant. There's going to be a war, and that's the end of North Korea. And it'll be a fantastic investment. Korea, The whole Korean country mm-hmm. will be Unified will be a great investment, or there's not going to be a war, and there's going to be a peaceful unification eventually. Either way, a unified Korea is going to be the most exciting country in the world for a decade or two. It's right on the Chinese border, 80 million people, cheap, disciplined, educated labor in the north with lots of natural resources in the south, fabulous infrastructure, capital management ability. It's going to be a very exciting country. Japan's against it because Japan knows they cannot compete with a unified Korea. America's against it because they, they don't want to have to take their troops out of there. But for the world, and when it happens, it's going to be very very exciting.
1: What what do you when you think about that and you look back to the unification of uh, Germany, for example? You know that was a very expensive uh, project, and I can't imagine that, uh, that that integrating North Korea into into. Or joining the two Koreas would be any cheaper than the German experiment. How do you think that happens? If if Is that something that the Americans, the Chinese will all eventually end up having to try and help pay for because they all want some stability there? Or is it something that the Koreans are going to have to figure out a way on their own?
0: For what it's worth, the Economist magazine recently did a study and showed that they say it would cost uh, I think a trillion dollars the unification would cost South Korea a trillion dollars. But They would get 11 trillion of benefits from from a unification. It's different, in my view, it's different from Germany. You know, There was nobody with any money. Uh, Poland didn't have any money, Russia didn't, none of the neighbors had any money when the the Germans uh, united. Uh, This time, everybody around them has money, including Samsung, including a (laughs) lot of uh, South Korean companies that are already trying to do business in North Korea. So I would I would find that there will be it will not be the same as it was in East Germany because the neighbors the friends there plenty of people who see the opportunities to invest in uh, a unified Korea.
1: Well, plus the, I guess these days a trillion dollars is not an awful lot of money anymore. Okay. I know, but, I but, that but that making
0: helps. eleven times on your money is still yeah. a nice
1: thing to do. That's a good investment. Okay, next question: uh, Inflation. Uh, Hugh Henry closed down his fund last week. Do you see the hedge fund industry struggling? Uh, and uh, is the move to passive investing going to continue, and if so, is that dangerous? And that's from Danny Driscoll.
0: Well, I use passive investing partly because I'm lazy, and it's so easy to do it (laughs) If you want to invest in a country, just find the ETF and do it. That obviously leaves a lot of opportunities for the companies that are not in the ETF, but I'm too lazy to go out and and look at all of them. Uh, As far as the hedge fund industry, Yes, but, you know, there are, what, 30, 35,000 hedge funds in the world now? Well, Grant, we don't have that many smart 29-year-olds in the world. <laughs> That's so, right. We, we've got to have problems coming. it has been a big bull market for eight, nine years now. No, when, when the next problem comes, you're going to see a lot of people get wiped out. I hope I'm not one of them. I, I don't have a hedge fund, but I hope I'm not one of them.
1: All right, and the last question uh, I'm going to ask you is this one, a very simple question, but uh, it's, it's a question that I really like, which is, Jim, what's the best piece of advice you were ever given by anybody? And that's from Ian Walker.
0: Well, follow the money. Uh, I'm trying to teach my children when they see something on television, okay, figure out who's going to make the money. Figure out where where the incentives are, and then you can figure out what's going to happen and why it's going to happen. I mean, it's, it's simple advice. Uh, it's something which a lot of people say, but I'm, not many people do it. But I have learned just figure out who's paying that guy off or who's going to pay that guy off. You know, that senator, that politician, that whatever. If you can figure that out, you're probably going to find a lot of opportunities.
1: And I guess that's one investing constant that works wherever you go in the world.
0: Yes. And the other thing I'm trying to teach my children is what we talked about before is to f- figure out your own passion. And that's what you should do in life. You know, the people who do what they love never go to work. They just wake up and start having fun every day. And those are usually the people that are most successful in life.
1: Fantastic. Well, Jim, uh, we're going to move on to the last uh, last segment here. And, and this is, uh, as as I said to you before, this is a, a blatant ripoff of the British uh, uh, Radio 4 series, Desert Island Discs. Now, in, in, in that, they abandon you on a desert island, but that's, that just feels so 1950 to me. So, so I'm going to send you up to, to Mars on one of Elon's rockets, and I'm going to allow you to take with you uh, one book, uh, one CD, one piece of music, uh, a movie, a piece of technology, and a quote, which I will get needle-pointed for you so you can hang it up in your new home. So, um, so let, let's start with the book. If, if you were going to take one book with you, what would it be?
0: be the complete works of Shakespeare Uh, if I I, and they exist I mean there are big big volumes of the complete works of Shakespeare I keep thinking that I'm going to sit down and read Shakespeare again someday now that I'm older and would understand it better Uh, so I would take the complete works of of William Shakespeare
1: John I I did a similar thing I didn't read the complete works but I went back and I read the plays that I was forced to read almost at gunpoint when I was at school studying uh, for, for English and, you know, and I hated those plays. I absolutely hated them. And I, and I sat down, oh, this was a number of years ago, and I bought the little Penguin classic copies of Macbeth and Hamlet and the Merchant of Venice, uh, and I sat and read them on the train, and I just found them to be wonderful. I mean, they were just magnificent to read.
0: Well, see, you're, you're breaking my heart. Now I want to do it sooner. Uh, <laughs> I might try to find Goethe. You know, the Germans say that Goethe uh, was, was as brilliant as Shakespeare. Goethe doesn't get as good press because they lost two wars and the British won two right. wars. But uh, I might try Goethe or maybe even one of the great Chinese writers.
1: All right. So um, now music, this is always the one that I find fascinating with people to to, to, to learn which piece of music they would take with them up uh, to that kind of environment because I, I would have the devil's own job of cho- choosing any piece of music but, but I'm going I'm to put you on the spot anyway and see if I can get, uh, get a CD or, or a piece of music from you.
0: Well, I would have to have a Mozart's forty-first symphony, or maybe Beethoven's ninth. I mean, these are pretty common things. Uh, or, 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 Strauss's uh, spring, uh, spring uh, symphony. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I remember once I went to a, a, to a, it was the Vienna Philharmonic was playing in New York, and they were doing uh, Mozart's 39th symphony. So I got the tickets just to go see uh, Mozart's 39th Symphony. And then after the intermission, they were doing this thing by this guy named Strauss. I'd never heard of it. I was even gonna walk out after I'd, you know, after the intermission, but I said, well, I paid for the tickets, so I might as well sit. And I was totally, totally blown away. I mean, there were over a hundred musicians and it was just the most, it was an astonishing visual sight. I guess I can't, you didn't say I could take a, uh, a DVD. Uh, I would probably take Strauss's Alpine, Alpine Symphony, if, right. I, if I were taking one.
1: All right. Well, we'll 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 hook that up for you. Um, and now, yeah, now a movie, um, a favorite movie that uh, you wouldn't mind watching endless number of times until the end of eternity, or when Elon brings you back, whichever comes first.
0: Well, I, I, I'm not such a great movie fan. Uh, I I don't go to many. I guess I would watch. Uh, I don't. I mean, you know, I'm, 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 the old, the old classics, uh, *The Sound of Music*. Uh, we, my children, and I, it's one of the few, that I've watched three or four times. But they love it, and I love it. Uh, what's his? Uh, doc? What's it? Uh, uh, *Doolittle*. Uh, *Aladdin*.
1: Oh, oh, *My Fair Lady*.
0: *My Fair Lady*. Yeah, we we watch that. There's something that we watch over and over here. Uh, I guess I'd have to take. I guess I'd have to take uh, My Fair Lady because that's the one we watch. I think of others that I'd like to go back and watch someday, High Noon, things like that. But yeah. these are old old movies. None of the nothing recently inspires me the way some of the old ones do.
1: No, I'm I'm with you. My my movies would my choice would all be from classics. That's for certain. All right, this one is a little bit easier. Uh, a piece of technology, any piece of technology that you currently own, um, which one would you take with you?
0: Well, I'm a, I'm worse at technology than I am at soccer because uh, <laughs> I have to take my phone, but I got to take my kid with me to teach me how to use it, uh, teach me what to do with it. Uh, yeah, I'd have to take my my portable phone, my my, my laptop, uh, because by then you don't really need a laptop. Everything's going to be on the phone anyway.
1: All right, and last of all. Um... A quote a famous quote or, or a piece of advice uh that you've heard that's that's resonated with you that uh, that you'd like to kind of sit and look at uh well that's a that's a good question i
0: should have done some home buy low and sell high i mean that's <laughs> that's we all know that one the problem is it's not easy to do we all know we're supposed to buy low and sell high we haven't figured out a way to an easy way to do it yet um uh, that's what came to mind, but I'm sure I have much, much, much better quotes.
1: Well, I will, I will get that. I will get that needle-pointed framed and uh, and stuck on the on the rocket with you, Jim. Look, we've we've run out of time. I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Um, every, I'm, i I feel so fortunate to get these opportunities to speak to you every now and again, and, and every time I do, I, I walk away feeling wiser. And, uh, and 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 this time, as a bonus, I also know what's in your pocket, which is uh, which, which is an added bonus. So thank you so much.
0: All right. Thank you, Brad.
1: It's been fun. Thank you. Well, we are out of time. uh, So that concludes this episode. Before we go, uh, the usual legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions, of course, of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, always place your stops, and please do trade responsibly. Next week, uh, another real treat. We're going to be back with uh, a special guest, jim grant and jim has been someone that i've admired for a long long time he's a great storyteller he's a great analyst uh and he's just a great person so i'm thoroughly looking forward to having jim on the show don't miss that um if you have any questions for jim then please send them in uh you can be guaranteed of an erudite and entertaining answer Uh, and i look forward to getting a chance to chat with jim in the meantime, if you have any interesting questions about either this week's show or anything else you've heard on Adventures in Finance, then we'd love to hear it. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, then please subscribe on iTunes. You know the form about reviews by now. Leave one, don't leave one. I really have no idea what they do. Keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and of course, podcast episodes. Then follow us on Twitter at Realvision. And you'll also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you just search for Real Vision, you can follow me on Twitter at ttmygh,
2: and you can follow me at aifjames.
1: That's aifjames. If you've lost the will to live, that's it from us. We will see you back here next week with Jim Grant. Thanks for listening.